Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Welcome back to 20th Century Geek, and Happy New Year! Welcome to 2019, and the new format, or the new-ish format, for 20th Century Geek. So hopefully you've caught the last episode and we talked about all the different topics and the way we're going to be doing things in the new year. Just trying something new. Uh, and we're going to be starting the new year with a thought piece. So this was just a question I put out, and I thought about it for a little bit, and I brought in a friend of mine to have a chat about. So Julian Darius is going to be joining me today to talk about Tim Burton and modern fairy tales. Or at least that's where we started. That was the starting point. And the conversation goes all over the place. Talk about auteur, directors, uh, modern cinema, and the impact directors have on the end product as well. So sit back, relax, and join us on one of our fascinating, and I mean fascinating, conversations. Okay, I'm going to hand over to me and Julian. Uh, so, Julian, welcome back to the show. I uh, appreciate you coming uh, back on. Uh, first one of the 2019, and uh, also first one of the new sort of format. Uh, and this is our first thought piece. And the thought piece is Tim Burton and modern fairy tales. And the reason I came to this was um, over Halloween um, and over, over sort of early Christmas as well. I watched an awful lot of sort of Tim Burton crops up. So I watched like The Corpse Bride, I watched The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, but I also watched like Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, uh, and Sleepy Hollow. And I just felt that more than other directors of his his era and his generation, although he's still active, um, he depicts close to that grim fairy tale aesthetic. Um, and I wanted to explore that more, really. And does he bring that into a modern um, society with things like Edward Scissorhands and a few others? So that was the idea behind this. So the first question to, to you, really, Julian, is what are your feelings on, on Tim Burton and his and your exposure to him, really? Well, uh, I'm of a certain generation. So uh, for me... Uh, the sort of late 80s and early 90s were, um, by and large, with few exceptions, a kind of cultural wasteland of hair bands <laughs> and Kiss and, and all of this. And, you know, it was uh, Reagan Bush. Um, and uh, if you were an artsy, weird guy, uh, you really had very, very little. And... <laughs> So Burton was incredibly meaningful to me, especially as a young adult. And I think he was for a lot of people. I think that, you know, the fact that he was weird, the fact that he was, you know, his movies were uh, filled with weird characters and were allowed to be eccentric and the sense of humor was dark. And, um, you know, he meant a lot and made a lot of people feel 
it's funny because you know, I was sort of um, uh, in 89 well, in fact Batman Returns is probably the, my first true exposure to um, Tim Burton and I because I was slightly too young for the first Batman film um, although I knew I recognised his existence I was probably eight at the time eight or nine and um, it wasn't until like I say Batman Returns in 91 that I really saw that and I was like that that looks cool like you know the Batman Bill looks cool the city looks cool the costumes look cool and uh, Danny, Danny DeVito especially as the Penguin like, really stood out um, and I think it was then that I started to pay more attention but it wasn't really until probably a little bit later in the 90s that um, when I started to understand film a little bit better in my early teens that I started to understand that the person who made Batman and Batman Returns almost also made Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice. Um, and at that point, you sort of see that there's... Oh, right, yeah, it, it, it makes sense. And I just remember, as you, as you say, um, the aesthetic and the design element just stood out because everything else of that era, especially, you know, the early to mid-90s, was not to say it was bland... But it was either extreme in the comics, or yeah. it was you know it was it was restricted by budgetary things. So like you know superhero films were not great, um, and horror was on the on the on the slide. And so the early nineties really was not a good era for you know cinema. It was about indie cinema. So anything else that was sort of glossy, I suppose Tim Burton was was that. He just stood head and shoulders over all these other directors for me. Yeah, I like uh, the way you frame that a lot. I think that uh, I think that's very true of the '90s, and I think that um, you know I'm remembering sort of like the late Schwarzenegger films. Mm. Um, you know, those were kind of so big at the box office, um, and you know, um, in a way, I think of Burton uh, in that period was kind of like the uh, Chris Nolan of the time, mm. in the sense that he was way more artistic than other mainstream cinema. And Burton could open a movie. I mean, obviously, Batman was one of the biggest movies of all time. Mm. Um, Batman Returns did really well. And, you know, some of his movies had a cult following, but he was really, he could open a movie. Mm-hmm. And he could, um, you know, turn something like Beetlejuice or Batman, I mean, at a time when superheroes were box office poison, into a mega franchise yeah. that just has nothing to rival it. And I, and I think that he was really rare in mainstream directors. Um, I, was, I was 11 when Batman opened, and I must have seen that movie. Like, I, 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 that was the first movie that I read the comic adaptation yes. before the movie. Yeah. Um, and it came out like a week before and I had like Batman cereal. I had all the toys, you know, the horrible toy biz toys that broke. I just kept buying replacements and I must have seen that movie um, maybe 50 times in theaters. Um, I would just go like every other day and, you know, my, my parents were probably just glad that uh, I wasn't bothering them. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, I probably saw Nightmare Before Christmas 20 times in theaters. Mm. Uh, I mean, by the time it was out of theaters, I knew every line in Batman. I had seen it so many times. Um, so, 
definitely was sort of like, I was an 11-year-old kid who completely got the Batman craze. Yeah. And I had grown up on uh, Dark Knight Returns and stuff like that. And so the idea that they were taking comics and doing it right, um, you know, that's another thing that I often think of about the Nolan films, that they get so much credit for kind of doing it right. Mm. And I think, in retrospect, we see Burton's Batman as, you know, like you said, a, a more sort of fairy tale kind of, you know, gothic noir thing um, that's kind of quirky and unrealistic. And, and Batman Returns goes more in that direction. But at the time, um, you know, really, um, Dark Knight Returns is kind of uh, quirky and, and not as realistic as some people think in retrospect. Um, and so. Batman and its success meant so much to me as a comics reader. I, I think you're right. I think, you know, it, it gets... It's funny. It's one of these things of... like It's almost like the ex-girlfriend or the ex-partner of, um, you know, you move on and you get something new and exciting. And we've now had, uh, let's say, the Nolan trilogy and then, um, but, you know, uh, Batfleck with Ben Affleck. <laughs> that the, the people go, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, well, the... Well, Batman eighty nine and Batman Returns are a bit campy and a bit silly, and yeah, well, Batman, you know, he sort of he, he sort of kills people, and it's like, da, da, and you sort of think, yeah, but <laughs> you know, you don't rip Adam West, and that was ridiculous. You know, it's it's a different type. It's, um, and I I do feel that sort of like you've got Batman sixty six and the Nolan in the Nolan verse being either ends of the spectrum, and then in the middle you have you've got this sort of like dark nugget of it is almost like a fairy tale land like gotham in in the, the burton universe is this sort of dark sort of german expressionistic sort of art deco um nightmare of a city that you know architecture it just doesn't it shouldn't work um but it just stands out and it's influenced so much um that to you know to rip on it now if you were to look i mean the whole uh, aesthetic of the the Batman the animated series is pr- and the music like the look it was all predicated on the designs that were created for the Batman and and, and Batman Returns and that Batmobile design yeah that Batman the the Batmobile design that that um, created for the eighty nine Batman has influenced so much since uh, and I think some people sometimes people lose lose sight of that. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I, think that's, I, I think that's all true. And, and I think that, you know, people forget that when Batman came out, the, uh, the problem was that 66 was still strong in the public's mind. Mm. And it was not expected to work. Yeah, you know, I mean, he cast Michael Keaton as Batman. I mean, he cast Mr. Mom as yeah. Batman. <laughs> that, that was, you know... I mean, Michael Keaton was known as a comedic actor, and even in Beetlejuice, it's largely a comedic role. Mm. Um, and I think Michael Keaton does a phenomenal job. Um, but I, I think that, you know, at the time, Batman 66 was so strong in people's minds, and the idea that you could even do a serious superhero, um, you know, in the same way that, like, he had been uh, fired from Disney for you know, making dark, short films. Yeah. Um, you know, he, Batman was considered too dark. Uh, in fact, that wound up being apparently one of the reasons why they went with Schumacher. 
Yeah, well, I think it's uh, in, in um, uh, Kevin Smith has joked about it on numerous occasions, but uh, Warner Brothers had a deal with uh, McDonald's to do Happy Meals, and they'd sort of left. I think they'd left sort of Burton to his own devices, and then when they sort of saw <laughs> what he created, I think they were a bit like, "Yeah, we, we can't really sell toys." Uh, <laughs> Of this sort of you know demented penguin and this sort of sadomasochistic looking uh, Catwoman, I think they were a bit sort of <laughs> lost on that one. Yeah. Um, but it really. Does... I think that's a wonderful story, uh, and I am sure that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is still the definitive Catwoman for me. Yes. Oh yeah, she stands again. She stands out. And this is actually something that I thought was quite interesting. That so when I decided to do the research on this, I. I I googled it and I put it into YouTube and I put all you know just to see what people thought and, and of, of uh, Burton as a director and his aesthetic and all sorts of things. And one of the things that came up quite quick was his um, he, he was sort of that thing that happens at the moment that older films of 30, 40 years old get critiqued under a modern eye, which you know is is a fair. Um, but there was this thing of sort of like his representation of women um, in film. But I, 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 and I could be wrong. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy, so it's sort of funny. But I always think think of the Catwoman arc in Batman Returns as actually, I'd say, quite a strong female empowerment. Um, you know, possibly not, not the healthiest way to depict it, but it's still a sort of, you know, in a sort of twisted Burton word. It's sort of, I thought, I still think that as a, quite a, a positive arc. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not as familiar with the, the critiques there. Um, what is the what is the through line? It, usually, the the, um, the two things that came up really well, really really strongly, were um, that um, that although his films are depicting outsiders um, or unusual people, or you know these these darker elements. Uh, normality always wins out. Um, so you know this thing of sort of like uh, so the examples were given were um, the Deets in um, and the um, the Gina Davis and, and Adam Baldwin characters in or Alec Baldwin character in uh, Beetlejuice <clears throat> is the all the weird elements by the end of the film have lost. You know the afterlife has been sort of is um, has been vanquishing isn't part of the house. Uh, all the artistic weirdness of you know of um, the uh, Catherine O'Hara's character has been stripped out of the house, and they're sort of you know bring it back to this middle America, um, and then the same for Edward Scissorhands, who's this you know ex- who's created by the Vincent Price Mad Professor, is then brought into a sort of hyper real modern suburban environment, and then they all sort of learn a lesson at the end of it of like oh yeah you shouldn't you know shouldn't um, shouldn't judge people by what they look like, blah, blah, blah. But then they all just wander off and go back back to their lives and normality has run out again because he still has to go live in his uh, castle on his own. Um, you know, and in, in, in sort of his, in, in his Batman films, it's the villains that actually are portrayed with, as the stronger characters. Batman is almost like periphery in some parts. And it, it sort of, I thought, yeah, it's true. But what does that say about Burton then, or what is he trying to is he trying to say something about modern society? Um, yeah, I mean that strikes me as, as you know a little bit like an argument that says 
um, you know, uh, like French New Wave ha- is filled with outsiders, but, you know, they mostly die at the end. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it seems to me that is reflective of a pessimistic vision of the outsider's role in society rather than necessarily embracing normality. Um, and I think especially in Beetlejuice, there's truth to that argument, but the flip side is, you know, Lydia's going to school, um, but, you know, she still comes home and, and is possessed and does Deo, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, they're so wacky. Like, they, they found a kind of way to sort of, like, integrate wackiness with, uh, with that suburbia. Um, whereas, you know, Edward Scissorhands is, you know, poignant to me because uh, because it has that ending. It's not, it's not going to work out. Um, you know, the world is going to reject this person on a, in a fundamental way. And I grew up in uh, middle America. I grew up in uh, sort of um, not a hyper-repressive uh, environment, but mm. certainly I still feel the repression of, uh, of middle America and of sort of, you know, I think you know Edward talking to fairy tales really and, and sort of myth. I feel that Edward Scissorhands is probably one of uh, Burton's like purest films. Um, mm-hmm. it, it feels like pure Burton, um, and um, this the idea that you know um, Edward is, is sort of it's almost like Beauty in the it's almost like a Beauty in the Beast story um, that you know and, and, and Edward is definitely the Beast. And he's brought into um, the you know the normality, the sub, you know suburban uh, families and the barbecues, and you know being able to do sort of like topiary with the hedges and all that kind of stuff. And he, he starts to find his place, but there's always going to be something that goes wrong. Um, you know, so when he is rejected and when he is or when he does escape and he is sent back for whatever you know because uh, being sort of set up at the end of it. For me, I think like I'm not saying Burton's trying to get deep, but there there is that sort of t- to me at least this idea that um, if Burton is, is you know if Edward is that sort of representation of of Tim Burton, it, there is this idea that well you can keep trying, but yeah let's be honest like you know in the film world in the fairy tale world something would have happened and they would would have lived happily ever after like he would have got his hands or he would have got. The blue fairy would have granted that wish. He would have become the real boy. But there's that thing of like, well, if you are going to be the the freak or the outsider, you're always going to be pushed out. And actually, that's probably more realistic than than the Hollywood ending that people would expect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And and keeping on the subject of fairy tales, I think that you know that darkness goes back to uh, you know the grim fairy tales and goes back to the earlier versions of the fairy tales. Um, and I think that you know I certainly grew up on the sort of Disney version, right? Mm. And the truth is that all of these stories are dark, and they get at at their best sort of deeper psychological things, right? I mean, Hansel and Gretel reflect childhood fears of death 
yeah. lots of children dies in those in those fairy tales. I mean, the fact that you see animals slaughtered and animals die, and you think I'm an animal, that could happen to me. Um, children do think that. Children are scared that uh, they're going to die, or their parents are going to die, or that you know um, they can identify with an animal that uses a food source. And I think that. That's some dark stuff that was obviously edited out of the very sanitized, you know, Disney-fied. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I agree that, that Edward Scissorhands is, you know, I was thinking, what what is Pete Burton? I, I, I think Edward Scissorhands is, is probably, certainly one of my favorites. Um, I, I, I think it's, you know, a, a spectacular sort of iconic movie. Um, you know, I also think of Mars Attacks, but that's less of a fairy tale and more just birth and being crazy, uh, which I kind of love. Um, but I think I think everything you say about Edward Scissorhands is right on the money. I do, yeah, I just think when I looked through and I tried to decide which ones I would say were fairy tales, there was, like you say, there's, there's, I love Mars Attacks. I think Mars Attacks is a great film. Um and I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I sort of struggled to fit it into the sort of, uh, to the, to the category. Um, but I definitely thought of like Edward Scissorhands, Sleepy Hollow, uh, Corpse Bride, but even mm-hmm. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice felt to me like, like, uh, you know, that, that sort of like the, the Hansel and Gretel or, uh, Alice in Wonderland, like, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. uh, the characters, I can't remember the names of the Gina Davis and, and uh, Bolden character sort of. They do, you know, their death is never depicted. You see, you know, you sort of, you know, what happened to them, but they stepped literally, literally at one point through a portal into a completely different world, uh, into the afterlife. And it's sort of, then it becomes a journey through, you know, these trials and tribulations of, of you know, the, the absolute lunacy. Um, and you get the sort of, the guide that, that, that Beetlejuice plays uh, is. You, you know, you could see him represented. He's that like the Rumpelstiltskin, or uh, he, he, that yeah. that he's that character that does turn up in in, in uh, fairy tales. That he is a main character, but he's definitely a villain. Oh yeah, I agree, and I, I think I think that's a responsible reading of Beetlejuice. Um, I don't I don't have any problem with any of that. Um, I, I I think even. Um, you know, although it's ultimately a, a happy story, uh, you know, I thought uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure could be uh, fit mm. in there. Uh, you know, as maybe sort of like, um, you know, an episodic fairy tale. But it definitely occurs in this kind of like weird world in which, um, you know, just bizarre adventures happen and uh, everyone comes together at the end. But you know, and it winds up being kind of like Hollywood fairy tale that winks at that Disneyfication more than um, goes against it, like, you know, sort of classic birth and fairy tales. But um, I can certainly see both of those movies. Yeah, uh, well, well uh, I think, you know, with Pee Wee's um, big adventure being sort of his directorial debut, I think, like I say, it's that first stepping away from, because he was a Disney animator, wasn't he? Um, mm-hmm. And you can sort of see that in the film. It's that first cheeky stepping away from the, the Disneyfication. So 
I mean, the irony for me that he's now directing Dumbo for this year and he did Alice in Wonderland in 2010 for Disney, like, you know, isn't lost. <laughs> um, to be doing yeah, that... And I, go on. And I, and I think that that is uh, part of the problem of sort of Burton's reception. I mean, I think that there is some revisionist history going on, like we talked about sort of looking at, at Beetlejuice and Batman and seeing representational issues and... and you know, maybe, you know, it's dark, but more dark fairy tales than, you know, gritty realism of Nolan or something. Mm. Um, but I but I think that, you know, Burton, uh, especially since sort of like Planet of the Apes, um, you know, he's been sort of like the go-to guy for this is a weird movie and Burton can pull off that kind of magic of just a bizarre, otherworldly feeling. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, if you have that kind of movie, your perfect director is Tim Burton. And I sort of see Alice in Wonderland in that context as sort of like, you know, the, the cliche is like, oh, it's a, it's a weird kind of quirky Tim Burton movie. Um, and I think that's a little unfair, but at the same time, there are ways in which he's kind of become a, a sanitized, uh, you know, parody of himself in, in some of his lesser stuff. Uh, no, I agree. And I think when, when he does the bigger studio pieces nowadays, I do, I think. And But the thing is, I think st- still some of his sort of, um, like you say, his darkness and cheekiness, that sort of like, the, if you want to say that Beetlejuice pokes his head through every now and then and you sort of get glimpses of it. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, in the 2010 uh, Alice in Wonderland, and I know it's part of the story, but it's clearly depicted in the film. Is you find out why the the matter the the, the Hatter is mad. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you find that he actually lived through what is tantamount to a massacre, and, yeah. his, and his madness is related to like PTSD. Um, and then you, in the same with like the, um, uh, you know, uh, his. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, you know, again, Depp playing it, but it's that sort of thing of like you learn more about. There's this sort of there's an underlying sort of um, depiction of Willy Wonka and the, you know his childhood and why he is the way he is, um, and you get that little bit of darkness again that you know. And I know people always go on about the Gene Wilder one and how good it is, um, but I still think there's still Depp plays. A creepy Michael Jackson version of, of um, um, Willy Wonka, but there's a knowingness in his look, and every now and then there are sort of scenes that have played out that you think, actually, this has still got a darkness and an undertone that that is is true Tim Burton, but then it's overwashed by a musical number and it's gone away, and you think, oh well, there it goes. Yeah, I mean, I actually love uh, that movie. I don't think it's a great movie, but. Um... I, I agree with you completely, and Willy Wonka is that kind of uh, fairy tale guide, but he has that, that darkness, as you say. And I think that, um, you know, I think Johnny Depp talks about how, um, you know, he, his character hates kids. Mm. Um, I mean, he, uh, you know, not only is awkward, but just really resents kids. Yeah. And that's why, you know, He's content for uh, them to die. Um, and, and ultimately, he comes around to, to Charlie. But 
Um, you know, I also just kind of loved, I mean, I am a giant Oingo Boingo fan. Mm. And so I love, uh, you know, the Tim Burton scores, and I love kind of like getting, um, you know, five or six kind of uh, late uh, Boingo songs that weren't. And that movie just turns into a sort of like weird Oingo Boingo music video yeah. at multiple points. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I love that. I mean, I love how crazy that is. Um, and I mean, it, I think I think it took me maybe watching it for the first time sort of like half the movie to sort of get what was being done here. And then I just realized, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it, just Burton being weird and, and making a, uh, you know, the, the Boingo musical or something. Mm. Um, and then I just loved it. Um, but, uh, you know, even that, I mean, the Boingo stuff isn't as much uh, a fairy tale, but um, it is sort of like the same sense of wonder uh, in those sequences and uh, rejection of, of realism. And I think that's a really good point. Is you know when you think of fairy tales, it is um, it is that rejection of realism. You know, you you have you say these fairy tale stories, and people do think uh, princesses in castles and that sort of thing. But that you know, like you say, there are more uh, folklore-based fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel, and um, I can't think of the top of my head. But th- those sort of more grounded ones that you know, when you, when you go back to the sort of Brothers Grimm versions. Um, they are a lot, you know, they're darker and, and it's, I mean, like I say in Cinderella, the ugly sisters, one of them actually tries to cut her own toes off so she can fit a foot into the slipper. You know, that doesn't happen yeah. in the Disney version. It's, um, <laughs> and you definitely see that there's that, 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 that darker element. I think, uh, again, that's, um, I watched uh, Corpse Bride um, not long ago and I, I love uh, both Nightmare Before Christmas and Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie, um, I think are fantastic. I love the animation style, the the sort of the Leica uh, stop motion animation. But in that, like the thing as well, sort of from Burton's point of view, is is the real world, the living world in Corpse Bride, is depicted in its grey, drab, um, <laughs> you know, sort of frustrating, and uh, the musical sort of tones and numbers are sort of um, uh, very sort of bass driven, like dum 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 dum. And then when it, when you go to the afterworld, when you go to the underworld, it's sort of it's all colourful and the musical numbers are jazz numbers and there's sort of you know uh, Danny Elfman gets to sing a song and it's sort of it's all crazy, um, and you sort of think, and everyone you, you know when you get to the end of that film, and uh, Victor ends up with uh, you know his bride the the right bride not the corpse bride and she's sort of released and spoilers, it's it's all it's you know people go oh it's a happy ending and you sort of go. Yeah, but now Victor knows, <laughs> has got this knowledge of you know how amazing things are. A lot of people have got this knowledge of how amazing the afterlife is, but he's still got to live in this drab, um, you know, sort of like frustrating existence where he's a fishmonger's son married into bankrupt aristocracy. And it's sort of, you know, it's that thing of like, well, I love Conquers All. Yeah, but the, the, Tim Burton's still telling you that it's still drab and it's still going to be... Right. And it's sort of it's interesting to sort of say you know it's still there that those little notions 
um, of you've, I think you just got you know sometimes just, you've just got to sort of go well what comes next and I think you know it's, it's the same with so going back to Edward Scissorhands um, Edward goes back to the castle or back to the mansion and then you see Winona Ryder's character uh, decades later and she's relaying the story and it is a fairy tale because she's explaining why does it snow here you know and this mm-hmm. notion of him sort of like chiseling away at ice and stuff um, yeah and it's, so the notion of he, she's got older and she's lived through and you assume she's lived through this suburban lifestyle and she's obviously she might have married the jock quarterback or whatever but Edward's lived in that castle, never aging and never doing whatever. So he's had to live, you know. So you think, oh, it is a sad ending, and it is, it is sort of a bit of a downbeat ending. But you know, well, what happens after that? Like, is he immortal then? Is he to live forever, tortured in this castle? Uh, you know, and it's sort of, it, it's, and it, but it's, like you say, it's the questions you don't ask about fairy tales that you know you sort of think actually this is these are sort of more grim modern fairy tales than the Disneyfication that that, that you know. That has happened. Yeah, and I and I think that you know a, a couple things occur to me. One is that there's no doubt whom you're supposed to identify with, right? Mm. I mean, you identify with the outsiders; they're the good guys. Yeah. You know, you identify with you know the netherworld, right? Those are always the interesting characters. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a little complicated in Beetlejuice because you know uh, you you have the sort of suburban uh, characters uh, who are good guys and kind of eccentric but but plain um, but mostly you know I mean there's no doubt whom you're supposed to identify with um, and you know the other thing that occurs to me is that in fairy tales the sort of fairy tale logic is very intuitive right mm. um, you know it's like this you know the best fairy tales might not make sense but they feel as if they express a deeper truth, or they they feel right. Um, it feels emotionally right, even if it just doesn't make sense logically. And I feel like that, you know, um, point you made about uh, the snow and Edward Scissorhands, boy, I mean, that feels rich and wonderful, and mm. it feels right. Um even though, you know, it makes no sense. I mean, how far are these ice chips spreading? You know? Yeah. Um, n- you know, none of this, you know, I mean, there's a castle on the hill, for God's sake. I mean, you know, none of this makes any sense uh, <laughs> in a realistic setting, right? But uh, but it feels just emotionally connective, and, and it has that, um, it might be a bit of a downer ending, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, the best love stories are always uh, tragedies, right? Yes. Um, if, if the couple lives happily ever after, you know, that's nice, but those aren't the love stories we remember, right? Mm. Well, this, and that's it. I mean, yeah, like you say, your Romeo and Juliet's and that sort of thing. The tragedies are the ones that sort of stand the test of time. And I agree, and that's what I think, you, I think you're totally right. I think it's not a, it's not supposed to be taken in a literal um you know, like you say, this isn't the Nolan verse, this is the Burton verse. So you do, you sort of say, yeah, it does, you know, if you're trying to apply sort of like that thinking logic to it, it doesn't totally make sense. But like you say, n- neither does um, all the fairy tales, the Beauty and the Beast, that sort of thing. It's There's a, there's magic involved in this and you go along to be told a story. 
absolutely. And I keep finding myself thinking of his, you know, I mean, a little off subject of fairy tales, but, but thinking of how, you know, we're describing Burton as, as you know, this sort of maker of, of weird eccentric movies. And it occurs to me that probably his two most realistic sort of normal movies are uh, Ed Wood, mm. uh, which is amazing, yeah. and um, and uh, Big Eyes, mm. which is, you know, a solid movie. Um, and both of them still nonetheless feature sort of outsiders yeah. who, I, I mean, I, I think of Ed Wood all the time. I mean, especially... You know, as a as a creator, you know the sort of uh, nobody cares if the tombstones are knocked over. You know, it's the idea that counts. You know, and finding, you know, like his just going for what he wanted to depict. Um, you know, is obviously celebrated in that movie, and and yet, you know, as a creator myself, I I, I often think of that and trying to find a kind of middle ground between like. Uh, okay, this this isn't exactly what I envisioned, but um, am I getting that core idea across? Am I am I conveying the emotional truth of the scene rather than just uh, the factual truth? And I think that my brain and my training has been so structural and has been so on the Nolan side of sort of like puzzle narratives, right? Mm. Um, and I think that's lionizes most and what gets the sort of like high praise yeah uh but there's a lot to be said for just what works emotionally and i think that um you know even in those more realistic films they work emotionally and and burton goes for um these scenes that um not only feature outsiders but but have that kind of emotional connection that maybe ties back to the fairy tale choices. I agree. Actually, Edwards is, is an interesting choice because um, I don't know. I haven't seen Big Eyes quite a while ago. Uh, I don't know enough about the the truth, the you know, the actual biography to 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 weigh it up. But having sort of like you know looked into Edward and that sort of thing, and I know that sort of whilst the events happen in the right order, pretty much, and there's some of this. You know, you know, in these films, things have to be uh, contracted, and characters sometimes have to be sort of, you know, um, amalgamated and that sort of thing. But the depiction that that um, the depiction that uh, Johnny Depp gives of Ed Wood, you know, is, is clearly not supposed to be a down pat impression of Ed Wood. You know, it's, it's not supposed to be. But the film feels, like you say, from a logic point of view, in a sort of a, a fairy tale logic or a storytelling logic, it's not. It's it's a biography, it's a biopic that's been taken and turned into sort of something else. It's telling me something else, more about the creators at that point, about an irrepressible creator who just wants to create and, you know, just just get his ideas out. And I sort of feel that, again, it's that sort of um, Johnny Depp as Edward is stepping in to be Tim Burton in some cases of like, you know, yeah, I know this is crazy, but oh, yeah. look, I've got this idea and I want to do it and I want to try and do this. And you know, I've got this person who's going to do this for me. And, the, and there's an energy there that, yeah, it's probably not completely accurate to Edward in the fifties, but do you know what? To, to Tim Burton in the early eighties, it's probably spot on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, that's, uh, 
you know, obviously what, what Tim Burton loves about Ed Wood, I mean, it, it's sort of less about uh, Ed Wood than it is sort of what Ed Wood means to me. Mm. Um, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, I, I, again, I come back to the unfairness of how, how Burton gets a little pigeonhole. Um, but, you know, how I, I know so many people who just, uh, um, you know, adore David Lynch. Um, because David Lynch is weird, and you know it doesn't, and it doesn't have to make sense. Mm. And they won't apply those same things to Burton. You know, Burton is just the, you know, the, the punchline of a joke because he he does weird movies or something. Um, but I was thinking, uh, apropos of Ed Wood, of sort of Ed Wood is that uh, fairy tale character that 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 um, you know he's a little like the. Um, Edward Scissorhands, who grew up in that mundane gray world, right? And of course, it's in black and white. Um, and, uh, you know, it's still like, he's not really from this world, right? You yeah. know, he's from something a little sideways to our reality. Um, but he's made his place in the mundane world, and he's never accepted it, right? He's yeah. never acclimated himself to any of the necessities of filmmaking or anything. No, yeah, it's, he's going to do it his way, and was, and I mean the scene at the end, you know, sort of towards the end of the film, I think it's maybe the final scene, is that you know he's doing Plan Nine from Outer Space, uh, or one of the, the films, and it's being backed by Christian, a Christian group, and they're trying to sort of keep telling him he can't do this, can't do that script, and he comes out of his dressing room dressed as um, you know in his female clothes, in the women's clothes, and sort of has a bit of a strop about it and storms off. Um, and they're sort of stunned and left to be like, I don't know what to make of this. And not, you know, maybe not to that extent, but again, I can sort of feel that there would have been that there would have been that frustration when Burton was making um, probably films like Beetlejuice and you know the first Batman film, where he's saying, right, we're going to do this, and it's going to look like this, and I want the you know the 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 sound stage is going to look like this with these angles and da 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 da. And people are going, well, you can't do that, and you can't do that, and it's not going to work, or you can't do this and that. And again, I can sort of see that that you know it's just that energy of like creation and creativity that that Burton's trying to express and be that outsider that he feels he really is. Um, and it makes me wonder, as you say, about sort of the more the more recent films, you know, to sort of say, and maybe I might be wrong, but but has he given in? To, you know, as he's got older, as he sort of compromised more. I'm not saying sold out. He's kept his aesthetic, but has he compromised more um, to accept that Hollywoodness in his films? Yeah, I don't know about that, and I, I, and I feel I feel it depends on the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, and I remember, um, boy, I mean, looking back, uh, you know, I, I'm looking at the the list now. And I think that I sort of loved everything through maybe uh, Mars Attacks. Yeah. And then, you know, Sleepy Hollow kind of left, you know, obviously that's very literally a sort of adaptation of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, sort of left me cold. Uh, It was sort of like, you know, a little more, you know, just kind of what you were describing of the sort of Hollywood touches on the story and didn't give me those kind of burden characters that I like to identify with. 
And then you get to like Planet of the Apes, and you know, I mean, that's not good. Yeah. Um, I think Big Fish is wonderful. I really dig Charlie yeah. and the Chocolate Factory and Corpse Bride. Sweeney Todd kind of, you know, left me uh, uh, a little uh, Sweeney Todd and Alice in Wonderland. I mean, kind of left me uh, a, a little not in love. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I love Frank and Weenie. I think Dark Shadows is okay. You know, I like Big Eyes, but it doesn't feel like Burton. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, like, like Big Eyes, I liked a lot, mm. but it doesn't have that kind of classic birth and magic. And, and I don't know, I don't know what's going on. If, if obviously on something like Alice in Wonderland, it, it's a big enough project that there are more, there are more um, eyes on him. And obviously Disney is known for micromanaging things. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like, especially in the era of the sort of Marvel blockbuster, um, you know, I mean, things are a little different at Warner's, um, but they make their own terrible mistakes. Um, but we're kind of in this this era in which uh, a movie can make a billion dollars. And if a movie can make a billion dollars, it has to be kind of, test marketed and focus grouped in a way that obviously Beetlejuice was not, you know, yeah. obviously Batman was not, um, Edward Scissorhands was not. Mm. Um, and, and I feel like maybe it's, it's that Hollywood culture that he's kind of running up against. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, it's, it's looking at the list. There are films that sort of, like you say, like, as I said before, there's like flashes, like you get big fish, um, and you know what? It seems like he's allowed to do more when it comes to um, the animation. So, like you say, you get like mm-hmm. Corpse Bride, Frank, and I love. I actually I love Frank and Weenie. I think it's fantastic. Um, and I do too. It's you know obviously based on uh, his pre. You know he did a short for it. It's one of the first things he did. Um, such a good film. It's sort of his homage to. Uh, Universal monsters and and fifties B movies and that sort of thing. And it's brilliant. Um, oh, I, I, I agree completely. And I saw that when I was a kid. I tracked down, like, the VA, I rented the VHS of the short Frankenweenie. Oh, really? <laughs> I've, not, I've, I've, seen, I've seen it on YouTube now. It's, it's really good. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and I do think Frankenweenie, and it's, on, it's actually on the Blu-ray now. I've seen it as well. So um, it's a thing of, it's, and it has that sort of, again, that fairy tale logic. It's a sci-fi you know, daft romp for kids, but it's um, it still has that that element that he he still clearly wants to tell those fairy tales, and and, and he clearly loves them. Um, but it's it's like you say, Hollywood seems to get in the way when it's obviously got a real budget associated to it. So it's, I'd love him to do more animation and do some more, cause especially work with work with a company like Leica that I think do great work. Um, Especially, you know, I mean, I think we seem to get away with more. In, I mean, darker fairy tales are definitely now being played out in animation, and um, I do think of things like Corpse Bride. I think of Coraline, um, which I think is uh-huh. which is absolutely another wonderful one. Um, Kubo and the Two Strings, um, and even you know when you look at sort of some of the stuff that comes out of Studio Ghibli and that sort of thing. Um, uh-huh. th- those darker sort of 
modern fairy tales, I think, you know, you, they're still there. And I think, I just wish Burton would probably do something more in that vein. What do you think? Well, I agree. I, and, and I think that, I mean, I would personally rather see him do, um, you know, a mix of uh, animation like that, which I agree completely that there's an audience for. Um, and um, and uh, maybe lower budget movies. Mm. Um you know, I mean, I don't need Burton's take on Alice in Wonderland. I mean, I don't think it's a bad movie per se, but, you know, I don't need it. I don't need his take on Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, nobody and, needs nobody know, needs his take on Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, at Secret, we did a Planet of the Apes book that talked about it and, and how it's not as bad as people think, but it's not good. No. Um, yeah, and... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of have this idea of, um, you know, people will say they don't like Burton or, you know, um, you know, and I'll say, uh, I, I like, you know, would Burton just let loose? Mm. Uh, I love Mars Attacks. Mm. Mars Attacks follows no narrative logic. I mean, it just yeah. embraces every cliche and Tom Jones is in there because Burton likes Tom Jones. I yeah. mean, it's the same reason why Danny Elfman has a, you know, perpetual music scoring career. Um, yeah. You know, Burton likes interesting stuff, and, and I'm not a big Tom Jones fan, but I love how much love Burton has for him and shows him in that movie. And I, I kind of, you know, I feel the same way about, um, you know, um, you know, obviously an inferior director compared to Burton, but, you know, in a lot of ways. But Zack Snyder, mm. um, you know, Punch Drunk is the, uh, what is it, Sucker Punch is the, is the best uh, Zack Snyder movie because it's just, there's nothing deep about it, but it plays with some ideas and it's just like a, a two-hour-long music video. And that's what he does great. Let, let them make that. They don't need to, you know, I don't need their version of whatever, just be yourself. Make the most Tim Burton movies possible, and I don't care if it was made for $20 million or 200 I think you're right, and I think there are directors that, are, you know, I do. I think when you see their name, I go, ooh, what are they doing? And I'll have a look. And if you think it's, you know, if it's too Hollywood, I, I, I'll either roll my eyes or I'll sort of like, well, maybe... Um, but if I think it's if they're doing an independent thing or they're doing their own thing, I'll give it a look. And I think like um, you know, Tim Burton's definitely one of them. Um, Zack Snyder is one. I, I will always sit or say because I love his. I do think he's got a really good eye. But the other one, like Robert Rodriguez, um, is another that can do some really interesting things. Um, but has a tendency. But the, yeah, then has a tendency to sort of fall in and do something that's really commercial, and it sort of it, it just feels lesser. Um, you know, and then you, but then you get guys that sort of stand by their gun and always do their own weird thing, like you know Terry Gilliam, who <laughs> will never be a huge Hollywood director, but has made some amazing films. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I, and I think you know we talked about, uh, and when I think about Big Fish, as well, I I do think Big Fish is a, is an interesting sort of comparison piece to something like um, Baron Munchausen. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen and that idea of, of, of tall tales being told and the way the you know the way it the way it sort of goes and the way you said about the no narrative logic like I, I really enjoy 
uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I think it's a great film, but it follows no logical sense. Like, you know, I'm, by the end of that film, I'm still... I've, I've seen that film plenty of times. I'm still not entirely sure, like, how the ending sort of fits together and stuff like that. It's it's brilliant. Um, yeah, but that's, that's part of its charm, right? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely a trilogy. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a trilogy yeah, I mean, we'll get into of, at some point. Yeah, but, I mean, that's part of the, uh, the, the problem of, of Hollywood. I mean, if, if you're going to do something that is that potentially commercial? I mean, look, and I, I don't, I don't blame them in a sense. I mean, if you're going to invest two hundred or three hundred million dollars, mm. I mean, that is a huge investment, and that has to make a lot of money. Um, you know, that has to make six hundred million easy worldwide to justify it. Yeah, um, and they don't get a bailout. Uh, nobody's running to to bail out. Uh, you know, Hollywood, when it banks on a dumb movie, mm. uh, we just make fun of those choices, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I understand why, you know, it gets put through this kind of process that, that often feels like it turns everything into, you know, processed American cheese or something. Um, it goes through a kind of meat grinder. Um, you know, but I, I understand that. Uh, I just, I, you know, part of the problem now is that uh, there's not, you know, we, we have some art film, but we don't have that mid-range that we used to. Mm. Um, and it used to be the case that there was just this spectrum between uh, an absolute indie film produced on $10,000 and something produced for 50 or $60 million, um, you know, a couple, couple decades ago. And now it's kind of all blockbusters or art house films, and that you know it's hard to get Hollywood interested in a thirty million dollar movie. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like you say, that's that was sort of the ground that was like a company like Miramax filled. That that was their ground. They were sort of the, the indie uh, directors. Sort of. So the, from that mid to late nineties, that was their thing. They were the ones that sort of you know. They supported like your Tarantinos, your Kevin Smiths, and uh, even some like your David Lynch's. That they gave them the money to make those small, weird mid-range films that <coughs> weren't going to have the multi-million-dollar appeal, but they were definitely going to make the money back because those people wanted to see those directors make a film, and they could sort of go out and do what they wanted to do and tell the stories they wanted to tell. And that's what's missing, I think. No, you're right. <coughs> Yeah. But yeah, I don't. I think there's, you know, it's there's potential for it to come back because Hollywood is risking, like, say, hundreds of millions of dollars on films that just aren't making the money anymore. I mean, already this year, they've got a couple of films that are already been banked as predetermined flops. Uh, Alita: uh, Battle Angels due to come out in a week or two, and already it's considered they're saying it's going to be a huge flop. You know that's why they put it out in January, and you just think, well, why? What you know? Who, who was the audience for? You say you take the Mickey out of the decisions. Like, well, why have you put all this technology and all this sort of funding into a film that I don't think anyone was actually asking for? Like, the, you know, no one was clamouring for it. But and but also, it's not a story that anyone particularly wanted to be see, you know, to be told. Um, 
it's there are some odd choices being made I think at the moment um, yeah well I mean I remember when directors were complaining that uh, their films were being judged on opening weekend and you know it, it wasn't you know the assumption used to be it was going to play for you know anywhere from you know three months to a year um, and you're probably going to get a good six month run out of it mm. and we'll see how it does and then they were complaining about the you know they're being told it's a flop on opening weekend and you can run those projections based on that opening weekend um, you know with a cone of uh, market uh, diminishing audiences for each given weekend and kind of have a range of what it's going to be and very yeah. few movies ever defy that and if you see an article that says, oh, this film's going to be a flop, then already you're being, it's being tarred with a brush that says it's not going to be very good. So, you know, I'm not going to bother going to see it because it cost me 15 quid to go to the cinema. I'll wait till something else comes out. So it almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy at times as well, um, which is unfortunate. But I, I do, I feel that at the moment, the last couple of years has been I, and there have been some great films I've really enjoyed some films but there has been a lot of like big and bland like they're very big and they're very fun and they're very sort of you know the stories are great the special effects are great and the actors are all very good and you know but there's nothing unique yeah. I, really and you know people might tell me I'm wrong I don't know about yourself but I just feel that there's very little unique in the cinema at the moment yeah and you know the strange thing is that um, you know, going back to uh, Batman, you know, like it's so strange to see Hollywood so dominated by. I mean, I wish there were more sci-fi. I mean, I was thinking mm-hmm. of the failure of Valerian, which I, I love despite some flaws. Um, you know, where I mean, they lost so much money on that. Mm. Um, but um, but you know, we have all these superhero movies. I mean, you know. You know, no longer are we in, you know, and uh, we also have um, trans uh, characters. We have, you know, I mean, when Johnny Depp was playing Ed Wood, that was mm. the simple fact that he, you know, uh, quote unquote, cross dresses was a was a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, that wasn't all that many years from, you know, uh, even uh, Philadelphia and the first, you know, sort of mainstream, uh, you know, uh, breakthrough uh, on that issue mm. um, and so you know we have a lot more kind of like outsider characters but um, but and there's a lot more diversity which is good but the stories that they're in are all kind of you know this kind of processed as you say sort of um, sort of uh, spectacles and you know and there isn't as much room for that unique direction or uh, for, you know, a new Burton to come up and say, I want to do a, a weird fairy tale about a guy with scissors for hands. Um, and you're going to try to, you know, sell that to, to McDonald's or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the most, the most recent comparable director for me, you know, just we were talking then was, is Guillermo del Toro. You know, he's with, <clears throat> with the shape, you know, the shape of water. I think that sort of, something where you could you know that's something akin to sort of um uh the shape of water and i think you know he he's another one that when he is given when he's given uh the ability to do what he wants 
um, he makes something amazing. You know, and it, it's not always perfect, but he makes something really interesting. And I think when you, know, you talk about superheroes, I think his Hellboy is really good. Um, especially, you know, got the remake coming out or the reboot coming out. But he, the, the aesthetic he gave to, especially in Hellboy Two, when you know you go to the the underground like monster market and uh, all using practical effects and all that kind of thing. You know, his monster effects are fantastic. Same for The Shape of Water um, and uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and even even Crimson Peak, which I thought was a really good, um, beautiful, gothic um, romance horror story. Um, you know, and everyone sort of goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then, you know, he, but he still gets to make Pacific Rim, which is one of the biggest, dumbest films, I think, of the last sort of yeah. 10 years. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think it's almost like you've got to sort of, you've got to pander to Hollywood every now and then to be allowed to do your to, to do your piece. But I just wish there was more doing their piece. Um, less Michael yeah, Bay, no, more I, Del Toro's. You know, and I think that the, there is a kind of model in which... Uh, you, and you see it in comics too, of sort of like I'm going to do, you know, a run on Batman, and I'm I'm also going to do this this indie thing on the side or this creator owned thing on the side, mm. and I, I think sometimes like, you know, that expresses itself with you know people doing sort of franchise movies, and then between them they used to do a uh, an Edward Scissorhands, or mm. they used to do, uh, you know, they would do an Inception or or whatever. Um, but now they're they're turning you know the studios want those blockbusters every year they want you know uh um you know the the next uh marvel installment um you know it's gotta be turned around in two three years at most um so there's not necessarily as much time for that and i think that i think the model of del toro who i love uh in much the same way is a, a good model there yeah, uh, but my my worry is that la- the last couple of years have also shown, and I, I, I s- reluctantly use the word auteur because I don't think they are auteur directors, but directors with a certain aesthetic have have worked on films, uh, franchise films, and then been kicked off because they've tried to lead into their sort of their tastes and their aesthetics. And I mean, I think of the uh, you know the um, the two guys. From the Lego movie that would originally planned to do solo, um, and I'm trying to think, there's been a couple of others that have had these experiences, and it's you know again, it's when you look at these franchise films, they don't want studios don't want um, a, a you know a, an aesthetic, and they don't want a, an auteur. They want someone a safe pair of hands, who a Ron Howard for you know, for want of a better phrase, who is going to come in and be. Um, you know, get it through, get it done on time, on budget, and do it so the you know, direct the actors to do something good, but get it out. And it makes me worried that they like say these potential these directors are, that could provide something new and interesting are actually going to be waylaid because of the fear that you know these experiences have put on the studios. Um, and so you you won't even get those sort of things in the in the big Hollywood films anymore. I think. Um, James Wan yeah. is probably the only, the only example I can give of him, you know, being being someone who's got a bit of an eye, and making it big in Hollywood. Yeah, and I think that um, 
you know, I mean, it, it, that was uh, also the case with Ant Man, right? Mm. Of uh, right, uh, yes, leaving that. Yes. Uh, yeah, and and I think the the Marvel Studios, you know, I mean, I always come back to that as the example of everything that's wrong with Hollywood, which is not entirely fair, but <laughs> but you know, they they hire these. Um, you know, they hire the, you know, young Tim Burton, the young uh, person who has a strange eye, and then they say, um, yeah, you're not going to direct any of the action sequences. Yeah. Um, you know, those are going to be directed by a B unit. Um, and even though you're the director, I mean, you're going to have some control, but, uh, you know, here's the script, that you know, or here's the plot that we basically envision. It's going to follow the same sort of character arc, and it's got to work in these references to these other movies, um, and uh, and then uh, you know how much room is there for you know really having your own vision and and going crazy and, and producing um, you know uh, an eighty nine Batman or, or whatever. Well, I think that that's the difference. You know, you, you're right because although I'm a big, I do like the Marvel films, and I will be. You know, in the line to see uh, Avengers Endgame um, with everybody else, I, and I think you're right. I find that, that you know Marvel's gone the cookie um, cookie cutter route, and it's it's paid off in many respects. It's, well, it's paid off in billions um, overall. But the fact of the matter is, it is actually coming to a point where yeah, all right, well, it, we we know I can guess what's going to happen. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. We're going to see Chris Evans do this, and we're going to see Scarlett Johansson do that, and it's going to be great. But you know what? What longevity does that have? However, whilst a lot of what Warner Brothers has been a bit of a train wreck, when they have lent into what the, that those directors can do, which is what they've tried to do, you actually do get some really interesting films. Like Man of Steel has got its problems. You know, I I, I agree, but actually, it's actually a pretty good film. Um, and then you sort of got Patty Jenkins doing Wonder Woman, and it's a great film. Um, right. Yeah. And you get James Wan doing um, Aquaman, and it's a batshit crazy film. You know, it's nuts. It doesn't fit. None. But then none, those three films do not fit together. Right. In, in any way, shape. But they're all exist. <laughs> they all exist in the same universe, apparently. But they're met. You know. But like you say, it, it's and I, I kind of like that as a bit of a model as well, where those directors mm-hmm. have been given the ability. In a grant, there will have been some control. But those directors have been given a level of control to say, no, you go do what you want to do and either have it that, you know, you're going to have um, a Kraken sort of voice by Julie Andrews or <laughs> you're going to have, you know, a Wonder Woman fighting Ares with a tank or whatever's going to happen. It's, um, you're going to do those things and, you know, yeah, then we'll come together and do the Justice League or whatever. But it feels a bit more like, say, they're going down that auteur route that, that, I feel Disney, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, that conglomerate is is really moving away from because they're going towards that cookie, as you said, that cookie cutter, um, bland vanilla approach. Yeah, and I and I, and I you know I, I agree with that, and and I think that um, you know I mean there, there's outside of Wonder Woman, I mean. You know, I, I would probably say those Marvel Studio films are, are better on average mm. than the DC expanded universe. But um, but I see shots in those movies 
where, you know, you're seeing like soldiers go through a forest and the camera's upside down and the Mm. image is upside down and it rotates around to, um, you know, be right side up. And I think that would never be allowed in a Marvel movie. Uh, You know, just that unique eye just doing something different, even just with a camera that, you know, that would not make it through the the Marvel process. Apparently Marvel's relaxing about that kind of stuff, but, um, but, uh, it gets down to, you know, camera angles. Yeah. Well, the, the, the example I can think of, and I'm just sort of checking it now is, um, that the Harry Potter, Harry Potter franchise is actually a really good example. I think it's, um, you know, the, the, the films, they really didn't know what they were going to be. They weren't sure what they were, how it was going to pan out. Uh, it was a bit of a gamble when Warner Brothers did it. And so you have, like, Chris Columbus um, makes the first two. Very, you know, safe pair of hands. He can do that, you know, that sort of wonderful chart. He can work with that, you know, children actors. He can do that sort of magical world. And they're great. And they're sort of, you know, they're, they're a really good introduction to the, to the film franchise. And then they introduce the third film. And you get Alfonso... Uh, Corian do the third film, Prisoner of Azkaban, and it's a completely different aesthetic, and it's like you know, it's got that dark European feel to it, and it's brilliant. And you think, oh, they're really going to lean into, um, you know, they're really going to lean into this. This looks like it could be fantastic, um, and then all of a sudden, after that, you get, you know, Mike Newell doing the fourth one, and then David Yates sort of like finishes off the franchise, and there's. there's they're not bad, don't get me wrong, but they become very, you know, they become something different. Um, they try, they, they sort of move more towards um, the Nolan influence. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that, and I, I, I what well, so again, I like, I really enjoy the Harry Potter films. I feel that there's, um, there's a magic. There's a magic, and then that's lost. That you know they they moved more towards reality when they could have moved completely into the into the outer realm, and it could have been something completely different. Um, and I do think again that's a Hollywood choice. That's a studio choice that was made for you know to make it more relatable or whatever. Yeah, I agree with that, and I, and I think that there's a joy. Um... You know, this uh, this all ties back to us wanting to see more uh, wacky Burton films. Mm. That you know, there's a joy to seeing something that you think this is not processed. This is not a studio choice, um, and there is a kind of depressed feeling that sets in. Um, you know, as as you know, you realize. Oh, this is this is a studio decision. I mean, um, you know, and I I get that way a lot when, you know, now we have a sort of plethora of these outsider characters, mm. but they're all kind of like they don't have edges to them. Mm. You know, like you know, I just feel like they they're wisecracking, but their wisecracks are like, um, you know, the you know they're edgy TM. You know, they're like the Disney version of edgy. They're the edgy that like Slightly. has been test marketed, and no one in that audience said this is outrageous. I'm leaving. Right? Yeah. 
It's the sanitised uh, version, isn't it? It's the safest possible version that they could they could produce. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so, I mean, I get really kicked out by that. And, I, you know, I get really uh, upset as I realise, oh, you know, you're doing all the things that indicate we're about to come up to a, you know, a, a fight scene climax or something. Mm. And... Um, you know, oh, I'm now in the climax of the movie. Um, now I will have to sit here for 15 minutes before anyone says anything interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, those are bad movie experiences for me. And those moments, even if I don't like a movie where I think, how did, you know, like, I've never seen this before. How did this get through? This is maybe mind-numbingly bad, but it's so uniquely itself that I'm won over. Yes. And that's it. I think every now and then those films do come out and you sort of go, oh, yeah, this is... this," you know, And, the, and people, like, um, jump to them to sort of go, oh, it's so unique and it's so sort of thing. Is that, you know, sometimes they get overhyped and that sort of thing. And I think that's a shame, but again, because there's not enough of them. And I don't think, like I say, studios aren't taking chances on... on these directors that you know, but as you say, let's go back to Beetlejuice. Like Beetlejuice, if you were to, if that was to be released today, as a new film, <laughs> people would go absolutely nuts. Like the character of Beetlejuice is disgusting. Like you know, he's clearly, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's, he's he's a sort of he's clearly sexually abusive. He he blackmails them. He he. In, in, but then there's also jokes about suicide. There's jokes about, um, you know, uh, injury, family loss. It's crazy. That film like. It, it could, be, if you were to release it, would be hugely offensive, and, and people, you know, people would be triggered all over the place. Um, but you take it and you go, actually, you know, like it's supposed to be that. Like no one in that film is, apart from the, the sort of the, the two protagonists, you know, the Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin characters. Like even you know, Winona Ryder, to, to, uh, Lydia Dietz, no one in that film is actually a particularly nice person. You know, the, the none yeah. of them, you know the sort of even Lydia Dietz sort of like you know they they portray that she's she's writing a suicide letter, but then she scribbles some of it yeah. out to make it more emotionally you know like more sort of emotionally um, appealing, gut wrenching. Yeah, and you think well she's clearly doing this just to get attention. Like you know she's not she's not suffering she's not she's clearly not suffering from a mental illness. Like this isn't you know uh, suicide due to depression or schizophrenia or anything like that. This is just I'm I'm a bored Hollywood you know a California kid that's not getting the attention from her parents. It just you know it's not until the end that she actually feels like an authentic person. Like she she feels um, disingenuous even then. Like she would be going to Hot Topic and buying all the bits and pieces to look like a goth, but really it's sort of like you know it's not it's not really there. She's just doing that to annoy people. Um. Scott, I, I, I recognize the truth of everything you're saying, yeah. but having seen Beetlejuice recently, I'm so completely in love with Winona Ryder. Uh, oh, yes. And, and with Lydia. I mean, I, I just, she's so utterly charming. But everything you're saying is objectively right. And I like the, the hot topic uh, yeah. analogy there. It's true. But the, but that's the truth. But, but she's just a teenager, and she is a troubled teenager looking to act out. And so. You know, yeah, she might be disingenuous as a as a goth or as a as a you know or whatever, but she's doing it for a reason. Like she's got her own reasons, and I like the fact that actually she sort of by the end of the film it's toned down, and actually she sort of she's able to be a bit more 
what I would say would be herself. Like, yeah, she's still got those tendencies, but you know, she 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 doesn't feel like she has to act out as much. Um, but no, I agree. I think she's fantastic in the film. Um, and I just yeah. I, do, I just wish though that those that fairy tale element and all those things would would be and maybe Netflix is the way that this could be saved. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Netflix is sort of is, is putting money into things that are a bit more edgy and a bit more unique and they're trying their hand at different things and maybe yeah. that, that'll be the way it forward for these directors to do their little projects and their, their pet pieces that they want to do well and it, it certainly does seem that the television is becoming that place um, mm. but it, you know I was thinking of you know the point you were making about how Beetlejuice is edgy in that way I was thinking like of the contrast between, say, Beetlejuice and Deadpool. Mm. Deadpool seems really edgy, but really it's a bunch of fart and penis jokes. And there's some clever stuff, like with the title sequence, and, you know, I definitely like the movie, but there are things that I hate. And Mm. everything that I hated was exactly that kind of, like, it's too in love with that particular joke and thinks it's much more edgy than it really is. Whereas Beetlejuice is making jokes about suicide and, you know, sex and, you know, it's, it's, there's an edge to that. And then I find myself thinking about how, uh, you know, if fairy tales sort of like have an instructive role for children, right. That's like, uh, fairy tales, were one of the ways in which we sort of like learn to conceive the world, whether it's that we want to be a Disney princess or, you know, mm-hmm. um, wh- whatever it is. Um, you know, I think children can handle, um, not that Burton's movies are really for children, but children can handle some of that edginess. Children can handle... Uh, they have thoughts about death. I mean, you know, we've gone through this kind of like Mr. Rogers renaissance and, and Mr. Rogers said the same thing, you know, that children can handle these issues. They have these questions. And, um, you know, and I think that it's healthy to present a sort of a little edgy, a little weird, you know, uh, a, a little um, troubling, uh, you know, something that, kids are going to ask about or, or at least ask their friends, you know, what does this mean? Why is, why is Catwoman dressed like that? Mm. Um, you know, um, you know, do you like Edward Scissorhands? Uh, you know, you know, is that the kind of guy who you would like is, you know, is she the kind of girl? Um, you know, I mean, these are questions that I think it helps us, you know, at a, at a certain uh. age to sort of define ourselves. And, and I do sometimes worry about the sort of processed, you know, um, culture uh, that we're talking about. Obviously, we, you know, you know, obviously things are better in a lot of ways, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but but there is a kind of processed uh, effect that, um, you know, I don't know is 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 healthier and, and maybe that sort of like edgy dark fairy tale where things you know like the nether worlds that that Burton provides are really scary terrible places right i mean oh, yeah, yeah. they're wonderful but i mean you know um 
Uh, you have like Oogie Boogie in uh, mm. Nightmare Before Christmas, and he's a lot scarier than like most of these Disney villains, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they they take him apart. I love that. <laughs> they take him apart, and he's filled with insects. That's what creates. <laughs> them. It's wonderful, and the animation is amazing. And but when we talk about this again, I think you know it's about uh, the san the sanitation of it and the sanitization of it. I should say is um, I look back and I think of films. You know, I watched as a kid growing up that scared me, but I went back to. And two that sort of stick out to me is um, Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal. You know, both sort of related to, to, to Henson um, puppetry and that sort of thing. But there's elements, the idea of like the Goblin King stealing a child and having to go off to the sort of Goblin Kingdom. And some of the stuff in Labyrinth is is nuts. Like, it makes no sense. But And some of it's really like quite unnerving. Um, and the same with the Dark Crystal, like the the, the 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 villainous characters in that. There's like vulturous um, characters, a, a terrifying, really. Now I watch it in respect, but like, I was watching as a kid and thinking like, this is amazing. I love this. This is this is great. Um, and there's a whole load of like political backstabbing and um, and betrayal goes on in sort of uh, in um, the Dark Crystal. And it's all it's it's. Um, yeah, I, I feel it's weird that I think kids' films... This is what I'm saying. You become an adult and you lose that ability. Well, lose it, but some people lose that ability to have that imagination and they feel they almost have to become like a guardian or like a, a custodian of uh, what is and isn't safe for kids. But then when you look at these things, like you say, the grim fairy tales were told to kids for a purpose. And they, before they became... The Disneyfication or the Disneyfied versions—they were dark and they were grim, and like you know, literally grim and full of murder and mutilation and child, you know, child abduction and you know, cannibalism and all this other stuff. And I think some of that does live on in some films. But the people, like you say, the sort of um, the Mary Whitehouse or the sort of the, the who will think of the children kind of people of. of been able to stop a lot of that in in modern cinema and modern storytelling yeah i think that's true and i and i think that you know it filters up now i mean and i think that you know one of the i often think about um well i I, i'm gonna circle back to burton but i Mm. but i often think about how um you know, growing up, I took comics seriously and, and, you know, not just superheroes, but certainly superheroes. And I believe that these stories, whether they were uh, superheroes or they were uh, just weird fantasy and sci-fi comics and, and novels were as good or could be as good as anything literary or or acknowledged as a masterpiece of cinema Mm. and but i took it as that was the objective right was to make stuff that whether it was uh a masterpiece of of realism or a masterpiece of uh you know german expressionism that it was a masterpiece on that level and i think that you know burton was you know, sort of part of the acceptance of whether of genre of, you know, you know, recognition that uh, those movies could be not just blockbusters, because obviously they were already with stuff like Star Wars, but 
there was a kind of legitimization of those genres and those weird stories uh, that Burton was a part of. Mm. And I think now we, all those stories sort of dominate the box office, they dominate popular culture, but with rare exceptions, and there certainly are exceptions, and, you know, they're not really made for adults. They're not really um, trying to be great uh, masterpieces of, of mm. cinema. It's almost as if in taking these things that were seen as childlike stories, whether it's superheroes or fairy tales, and making them more artistic and more for adults, what we got instead of great masterpieces of those genres was the adoption of those genres into a kind of mainstream Hollywood cookie-cutter approach that... I feel like now even adult material or material that used to be adult material often feels sanitized to me in a way that I associate with protecting children. Mm. No, I agree. And things, it's that thing of fear of, and it comes down to less, I'll say, but it's protecting themselves, isn't it? It's that thing of they don't want to trigger anyone. They don't want anyone to be pointing out whitewashing or lack of diversity or um, use of language or you know feminism or... And I'm not downplaying any of these issues that exist, and they do exist in Hollywood, but because there's a tr- there's a fear of, of stepping onto one of these hot trigger but you know these trigger topics, they sort of don't let themselves go, you know, expand their uh, the possibilities or um, you know what they could do. I think that's true, and I think going back to you know the point you were making about. Um you know, artists being allowed to have a sort of singular vision. Um, You know, part of having that vision is saying, uh, screw my audience. Mm. If they don't, you know, they're not going to like necessarily that this goes in this weird, you know, uh, Terry Gilliam direction, right? Yeah. Um, You know, who thought that the audience is going to buy... um, you know, it's nose because Edward is chipping at the ice, right? Who thought that was a, a good idea? The audience is going to is gonna buy that and say that is the most successful resolution of that story. Nobody. Mm. I mean, you know, maybe there's some of that in Beetlejuice, but, but you know, it, it's still weird. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the, again, there's something to be said for just kind of, um, you know, as much as those are legitimate issues. I, I think sometimes that um, there's a kind of very, I associate it with as a very kind of like American attitude. Um, and it is a very Midwestern attitude kind of going back to the, the way in which the Midwest and, you know, America can be a, a place of great freedom and also a, an oddly repressive kind of suburban black and white gray place. Yeah. Um, that people don't want to offend, right? They want people to like them. Mm. And, and I think especially in America, um, you know, nobody, I mean, to be, to be called a misogynist or a racist, uh, you know, is the end of the world, right? I mean, that's like, you can't even like say in public, you enjoy those movies anymore without sparking a discussion. And, 
I want to have that discussion. That discussion is good. That mm. discussion is positive for society. But, but I also think problematic portrayals spark those discussions. And they're going to be problematic portrayals. And there is a responsibility of an artist to say, uh, yeah, I mean, you can run this analysis. I mean, I can see that or not as an artist. But at the end of the day, this is the right choice for the story I want to tell, the movie I want to make, the comic I want to do. And if somebody objects to it, that's fine. Um, you know, which, you know, James Gunn is not, you know, was, uh, wh- wh- who was it uh, who, uh, you know, was so hostile to, uh, oh, it was uh, the director of Last Jedi, right, who said, yeah, yes. I never learned anything from a critic. Um, I mean, who, Johnson, right? Yeah, Ron Johnson, uh, that's it, yeah. Yeah, um, but I but I think that you know there's a middle ground in which we can let stuff be edgy, let it be problematic. Every movie is problematic in a way, and you know that doesn't mean you have to embrace just the depths of of misogyny or or racism or anything else. But in as much as any character becomes a representation for an entire class of people just given how many characters are in the average story um you know there are going to be problematic depictions Mm. um you know characters are going to do things that you like or you don't like or that are good or bad and people are going to see that in different lights and we can have those discussions but you know we we can't be sort of like so scared to um you know, obviously, it's as much of a problem uh, that people don't want to scare Hollywood or scare, you know, the market yeah. or scare, you know, the parents um, yeah. as it is, you know, cater to liberal sensitivities or something. I, I don't want to misrepresent that that is the, the biggest problem. Um, no, but you make a point, and it, it just struck me really that, so, you know, we've, we've talked around... Um, those mainstream pop culture movies um, that are trying to appeal to a mass audience and they're the ones that have become cookie cutter because you know you've got to get your four quadrants you've got to get your PG-13 rating and all that kind of thing Um, but when we were talking about there are still films I suppose that do jump out of that thing but it's it's in the different genre and I I think horror really is the one that has started to come through and sort of every now and then just throws out these oddities there is a clear vision, and I think you know you do get films um, like Get Out or Mother uh, or Hereditary, um, where it's you know because it, like you say because it's a lower budget and because there's there's lower expectations of that genre, and you know people they seem to forget the stories that it can tell or the the feelings and the emotions it can it can uh, evoke. That they don't expect much, and then so one when one of these films comes out, they're like, "Oh my god, it's amazing! It's the best thing ever!" It's, you know, <laughs> how is this? What? what uh, but then you get this instant response of, "Which blockbuster is this director now going to go and make?" Um, right. And you sort of think, "Well, no, no, no. Why is it? Why is it? Oh, I wonder what story this person is going to go tell next." I mean, you know, it's it's um. It's it's one of the only sort of industries or the only sort of media where that happens, really. I suppose because you don't sort of say a comic book writer or artist doesn't jump to a, you know a, a a main thing straight away. You know they get a choice or 
Um, just because someone's done something great in an indie thing, you know, it could be Boom Studios or it could be Avatar or even Image, does not mean they're automatically going to get a run on Batman or Superman or Captain America. Um, and it's not spoke about in that way. They're not like they're, they're, there's more of that. Um, oh, they've done an amazing job in their independent work. I can't. I can't wait to see what they produce next. It's not a push to go straight to the top, you know, to the big two straight away, or for them to even do that. Um, but it seems to be you wouldn't do that. You know, there was no push for. I can't think of sort of like you know standard book series or that, but like you know. It doesn't happen with authors either, but it seems to happen in Hollywood where the moment you make a good film as a breakout, it's well, what big film are you going to make next? And and you know, I'm I'm very glad that Jordan Peele has gone from Get Out to now making um, Us for for this year, and he's sticking to his sort of like you know smaller horror uh, sort of roots, the stories he wants to tell, and I'm like that's great because that's what you should do. Um, and maybe that's where yeah. the difference is going to come. Yeah, I agree, and and I and I think that um, I agree completely, and and I think that um, you know the other thing is the, the, this lack of a middle ground, right? That I mean, it is such a bizarre thing to think that somebody goes from a you know two million dollar movie to a two hundred million dollar movie, mm. um, you know, and you know, I, I mean the. 70s is, is often considered the, the golden age of, of uh, cinema. And back then, you know, uh, before Star Wars, I mean, they would say to, to a director, you know, um, okay, I mean, you're going to have complete creative control and we're going to fund this to the tune of, you know, uh, what would be today a blockbuster. Yeah. Um, and, and even, you know, when Burson was coming up, there was this kind of middle ground where a studio would say, all right, well, you made, uh, you know, $50 million on a, you know, $5 million budget. Uh, let's see what you can do with $25 million. It wasn't jumping directly to, you know, a $150 million movie, uh, which then has to get kind of test marketed. And, you know, obviously we're speaking as readers and we're speaking as members of the audience who like this more innovative or, or different idiosyncratic stuff. And so we want more of that. And I, I don't begrudge a creator saying, you know, I mean, I got a check. Yeah. Um, I've never been a millionaire and they offered me a million dollars to direct this. Um, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge them that, but in the long run, it seems to me that it is the, uh, get out that that's going to be remembered and going to, you know, not necessarily, um, it's not that, you know, a Captain America movie won't be talked about, but, or, or won't continue to get played, but, you know, people today still have, um, uh, still have Jack Skellington tattooed on them. You yes. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Millennials have it. Yeah. That is mind-boggling to me. Yeah. I mean, as a kid who watched that and, you know, and saw it as part of, um, uh, you know, this sort of continuing, uh, may maybe there's a place for me in the world, um, you know, it's staggering to think that this wasn't forgotten. And, Disney has now embraced that and, you know, it's at Disneyland and mm. just accepted. And that 
new blood isn't going to come from um, not that that's the goal to have an attraction at Disneyland, but that new blood and that 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 level of just people having tattoos and the merchandise still being in Hot Topic for the Lydia's of the next generation. Yeah. Um, you know, that blows my mind and that's not going to happen. Nobody's going to remember, you know, uh, you know whatever it is, uh, Captain America, Civil War, or whatever, you know, for all of its, you know, uh, good points. Yeah. Uh, you know, in quite the same way. No, I think it's true. I think, you know, that's... I, 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 I think TV and... I do think people, things like Amazon and Netflix, when they start to fund these films, they're going to be the ones that are going to say, actually, we've got the opportunity to make something unusual here. Like, go for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's it's starting in horror. And I can think of others like you know, A Quiet Place last year was another one that sort of a breakout hit. Um, and they're just doing something different. And I think I think Netflix is really pushing the boat out now. I mean, you know, this uh, I haven't. I, it's terrible to say it, but I haven't seen it yet. But Bandersnatch, the, the you know the latest thing of, of Black Mirror, where it's actually interactive and you can choose your path and an ending and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Where they're really saying like, okay, well, what can we do with this technology? What can we do with this sort of story that we want to tell? And they're trying something different. Yeah, I turn to I turn to the hot, you know, to the whatever's going to be on the cinema. There'll be it's January, so you're going to get your 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 award season stuff that it might win best picture, but we we've forgotten within two years. Or the junk that the studios have made and thought, actually, it's not going to compete in the summer, so we'll stick it somewhere else. And, you know, so it's... There is this... There's a sort of a hollowness in Hollywood at the moment that I think... I hope that directors like Tim Burton and Guillermo del Toro and, and others will move and see the opportunities that there are in in um, these smaller budget, but probably more risk-taking companies like Netflix and Amazon. Yeah, I agree, and I and I think maybe that maybe that can maybe that will wind up being a kind of new middle ground where, mm. um, you know, I mean, whatever one thinks of uh, Woody Allen, for example, um, you know, where a director who has a name, who's done, you know, great things, can be snatched up by Amazon or Netflix, um, and you know, get. A budget of a few million dollars, which is really only you know uh, these days. I mean, um, major television is running you know like two million an episode easy. I mean, some of those HBO shows are you know ten million. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, it's flabbergasting to me to think of you know when I know so many people who can get a camera. And shoot something digital and have a great idea what you can do for $10 million. (laughs) What that means. Um, You know, and then I, and then, you know, and then I see, I mean, I get so depressed seeing, um, you know, a a spectacle in the movie theaters when I, I start thinking how much money did this, you know, two minutes of, of things exploding and, um, what a, you know, spaceships flying around cost mm. to uh, animate in the computer, and it's about nothing. Um, 
you know, I'd rather Tim Burton do, uh, you know, go to Amazon if that's what it takes. I'd love that to happen. I really would. I mean, I think just in my head, I'm thinking Amazon in particular have really pushed the boat out. And I think uh, the work they've done on Preacher um, and the work they did on uh, like American Gods, uh, two shows that, yeah, you know, they're both, I really enjoy both of them. They've got their flaws, but they've really sort of taken risks. You know, they're not pandering to an audience. They're, they're, as you said, like, screw the audience. It's like, no, no, we're making this show. It's going to be nuts. It's going to be weird. Um, and you're either along for the ride or you get off because that's what it is. Um, and I think that's sort of a real brave approach. And, you know, there are people that I know that watch those shows and go, yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't like that. It was too weird for me. Um, but then there's others that go like, no, 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 it was, it was brilliant. And I was fully invested in it and I really loved it. And, um, you know, I think that's great. I think that's what they should be doing and just tailoring their budgets to it a little bit more. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, and I think about how, um, you know, apropos of Burton doing animation again, how uh, Netflix got Matt Groening uh, to do, you know, his that fantasy show. Um, yes. I, I forget what it's called. The Disenchantment. Um, okay. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, uh, how awesome would it be to get Tim Burton mm. to create an animated franchise, you know, where, you know, you can do a season of it, uh, you know, all of his wackiest designs. Who cares? We're Netflix. Go nuts. Um, and let's see where it goes. If it gets ratings, we'll, you know, we'll make more of them. Yeah, I'd love that. That would be amazing. Sort of just eight episodes, eight, eight or ten half-hour episodes of him doing, whether it be pencil animation or 2D animation or... Um, you know, stop motion animation. I prefer stop motion, I think, but just something would be amazing. That would be, you know, like you say, let him off the leash, let him be that director, and, and you know, he, he, I think he's still in there. Oh, I think so too. And I, and I have faith, you know, uh, Burton seems to me to be somebody who, uh, while he's gotten older, still has ideas, and still mm. when I see him in an interview, he's still quirky and has has fun ideas he you know he might be a little jaded from uh directing movies in hollywood for so many years but um but uh i'd, I'd love to see uh, he seems like somebody who has endless designs um yeah. and his sketchbooks kind of uh demonstrate that yeah hopefully hopefully someone at netflix is listening to this and they'll take it on <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's great. I think we'll wrap up there. I think we'll sort of we've brought. I think we've gone off on numerous wonderful tangents, and 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 that's why I love these conversations because, uh, and that's sort of why I started doing these thought pieces because we can start from somewhere and go wherever. Um, so well, thank you, that's Julian. One thing that I, I love doing this, and I I love what you're doing, and you know I just uh, want to encourage everyone to. Donate to your Patreon if you've if you've got a spare dollar. I mean, Scott is an awesome guy, and I, I love these conversations, and I hope that the audience does too. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been, and listen to him; he's right. <laughs> the Patreon is there. <laughs> Please, if you want to spare, uh, do some more, because we've got some. We've got another conversation coming up soon, um, and you know, I've got some other great things coming up. I've got um, uh, working with other people, we're looking at because there's 80 years of Batman as well this year, so I'm gonna be doing some Batman stuff. 
Um, I'm going to be doing some other film reviews. We're going to do some retrospectives. Um, but, but you and I, Julian, we're going to talk about something that I think both of us have an appreciation and um, uh, both agree that it's an underrated classic. And that is uh, Alan Moore's Miracle Man, or Ma- Marvel Man, Miracle Man, whichever um, trademark you want to put to it. But Miracle Man, um, soon. We're going to be talking about that, aren't we? Yes, and I can't wait. Uh, I mean, that uh, is probably above almost any subject uh what i find uh you know i I can't wait to do that podcast i find it endlessly fascinating and probably think about it far more than a selfie yeah yeah Okay, ladies and gentlemen, well, there it was. What a fantastic conversation. I love it when Julian comes on. We always have some great conversations, and that one, as I said, went all over the place. A couple of big tangents, um, but I'm hoping you agree that actually it was a conversation worth having, and I know there are people that are big fans of Tim Burton, and I know there's some people that just you know really don't like his style, but either way, I'm sure there's a director out there that you think is underappreciated or whose style is underappreciated or you think just their filmography is underappreciated. That's what we're talking about in this conversation and I think they all need to be sort of champions. If you love a director and you love their back catalogue, you talk about it and you let people know. Okay, well the next show, the next show I mentioned that Julian's going to be a big discussion and review of the uh, Alan Moore series Miracle Man. But before that, we're going to get dark. And we're going to start talking Batman. It's, it's been 80 years. Of, it's 80 years of Batman this year. So on the next show, we're going to be talking The Dark Knight Returns. And we're going to get into a deep uh, discussion and review of that book, uh, where it stands today, where it stands in history, and why it's so important to Batman mythology uh, and pop culture in general. So we'll talk about that in the next show. However, if you want to get in contact with us to talk about anything we talked about today, or any topics you think we should be talking about in the future, please get in contact with me uh, at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com or at 20thCenturyGeek on all the social medias. That's Twitter, Facebook, uh, Tumblr and Instagram. And of course, uh, I will be getting on it more this year, but we will be doing Patreon and we do have a Patreon. So please go check that out. And if you want to throw some coppers our way, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, but in the meantime, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Mm-hmm.